If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From street names to statues that have now been toppled, links to the transatlantic slave trade are still written into the geography of the port city of Bristol. But the transatlantic slave trade hasn't always been taught in much depth in the city's schools. After the statue of slave trader Edward Colston was pulled down by protesters in June 2020, a group of history teachers banded together to create a new textbook, Bristol and Transatlantic Slavery, Origins, Impact and Legacy, to educate students about the topic. Our section editor, Rhiannon Davies, spoke to two of the book's authors, Richard Kennett and Tom Allen, about the project. So what inspired you to write this new textbook? I think you should answer that one, Rich, because it was your idea in the first place. Fine. I mean, it's interesting, sat in this building opposite the Colston Plinth, um, and I think that the thing that clearly inspired us to write the textbook was um, really watching that statue fall last June, a year ago. And the reaction to the statue falling a year ago um, from the public and from our own students, I think really made a lot of history teachers in Bristol think that what we were doing wasn't good enough. And actually... I think we needed to teach transatlantic slavery and empire in a different way. And really, in those following weeks after the statue fell, a lot of us kind of started looking back at the textbooks that we used. And frankly, we were slightly appalled by what we saw. And we were realising how narrow and how um, colonial a lot of the textbooks were. And we kind of came up with this idea that, I know, let's write our own. It's lockdown. None of us were going away last summer. We had some time on our hands um, and we were like, let's write our own. So we sort of embarked on a project that we were initially going to write a PDF, a leaflet um, for ourselves. And that kind of spiraled out of control and turned into a book in the end. But it was really definitely the, the Black Lives Matter protests were the thing that definitely inspired us and kicked us off on this project. 
I definitely like to find out more a bit later on about Black Lives Matter and the Colson statue, particularly as, as you said, just outside our building is where the Colson statue originally stood. So it'd be great to get more on your guys' thoughts on that later. Um, but before we come on to that, I wanted to know a little bit more about the process of writing the book because it was very collaborative, wasn't it? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, um, although, as Rich said, the the, the statue coming down and the, the protests kind of brought really into sharp focus a lot of the issues we wanted to to resolve with the book. Um, transatlantic slavery was something a few of us on the, on the team had been working on already. Um, there was a fellowship run by the Historical Association the year before that uh, two of the authors, myself included, had been on. And that, I suppose, had started this process of, of really thinking about um, what the problems were with the way we had been teaching slavery in the past. Um, and a lot of us on the, on the writing team knew each other already. We, we have these meetings in Bristol a couple of times a year where history teachers get together and, um, and talk about a certain issue. And, um, and so we kind of had a, a team from the beginning of teachers who were keen, enthusiastic, and who we knew were good writers as well. And, um, and then we got involved with the university, didn't we, Rich? Yeah, and, and what we realised from the start is that we kept saying we wanted to get it right. So we realised that we needed to enlist academics. So from the start, we kind of asked for help from academics. And academics from Bristol University immediately said yes we'll happily check anything you want so they started um ripping apart our initial book plan and um, then we were sending off our draft chapters to different academics both from bristol and from other universities and they were really heavily critiquing it and then we did the same when we did the man when we got to the actual final manuscript we were sending it to different academics so it was really collaborative between teachers and academics and then there was a really a third group who was also instrumental and it was the museum because Bristol Museum have really funded the project but also provided massive expertise so one of the curators who's actually just retired the curator of the transatlantic slavery gallery at Emshed um, they really had the most amazing knowledge and were able to kind of rip apart some of the manuscripts that we'd written, where we'd written stuff that we thought was accurate. We'd all read quite right, widely ourselves. And yet the museum team and the university team were able to come in and critique it and pull it apart. And it's actually ended up that one of the academics we worked with, Richard Stone, um, we published his research before he's published it in an academic paper because um, we got there first, I think only by a few months, but he'd done research into the fact that Bristol merchants were trading enslaved Africans way before 1698, which is when most people thought that Bristol properly started. Richard had proof that Bristol merchants were trading decades before that. We put his research into our book, which is quite neat because a kid's book's got the most up-to-date kind of academic research available. And of course, there were those moments where two different academics would send back their comments on the draft, both disagreeing with something we'd written, but for different reasons. You know, one saying, you haven't, you haven't uh, emphasised this enough. Another person saying, oh, this is, this is really over-exaggerated. So 
I suppose it's an insight into the historical process, isn't it? That we had to decide where we were going to draw the editorial line on those things sometimes. And in particular, where do we draw that editorial line for a 12-year-old? Because that was where we were aiming it. We were aiming it at 12-year-olds. And we had to sit there with different academics saying different things. Go, okay, what do we think a 12-year-old needs to know in this debate? Though, well, All right, there is clearly a debate here, but what is the line that we're going to take? And yeah, it was it's hard, but history is hard and, and history is a debate and it is a discussion. And I think it really made us think about that a lot as well. Yeah, I think that's why it's important that it was classroom teachers actually putting the final book together. Yeah. Because we could all visualise our own year eight students and and what they would be enlivened by and what they would be shocked by and um, and how they would react to all the different elements that went into the book. And you've mentioned it's for year eight students. I was wondering, why did you pick that year group to write the book for? Was there any reason? Yeah, I mean, really simply, that that's the year that pretty much um, every British school will teach about transatlantic slavery. And, it, and it, it is taught in nearly every school I've ever worked in. And it, year eight just happens to be the year that most people teach it. So that was why we pitched it there. Because it, it's one of those topics that's quite bizarrely not really in the GCSE at all. So if you do it, you do it at key stage three. So you do it in those years seven, eight or nine, and most people do it in year eight. So that's why we pitched it at that level. And thinking about the existing curriculum, I've actually got a quote that I'm going to read out now, which is from Sally Thorne, who's the head of humanities at Colston Girls School, which is soon to be renamed Montpellier High, and who was also involved in the project. And she said that in other textbooks, there was a victim narrative of black history that too often centred on the mechanics and the macabre elements, rather than putting black people at the centre of the story. Do you guys share that view? Is that what most textbooks were like? Yeah. And why do you think... That is. Why is that the narrative that was pushed? I think one of the problems is that the previously, the first time a lot of students in British classrooms encounter African people, it will be uh, when they're learning about the transatlantic slave trade. Now, this is something that, that is changing now. A lot of schools have recognised this problem. For example, um, a lot of teachers are now teaching their students about the uh, Kingdom of Mali in year seven, Mansa Musa, to show that um, African history didn't begin with with transatlantic slavery. But as I say, that kind of, um, and as Sally said, the macabre um, telling of the story makes has made African people into passive victims that they'll they'll enter the story being um, being enslaved and then. Often it, it, there will be a focus on um, the experience of a slave auction and also then life on a plantation with a kind of a, a grotesque emphasis on horrible punishments and physical scars, that kind of thing. And I think what that does is it, uh, it reduces the humanity of those people, even if it's being done in a way to try and, to try and uh, generate sympathy or empathy it it dehumanizes and it takes away the agency of people who, at every step of the way, um, rebelled against enslavement. And I think often another problem we've identified is that it tells the story in a very American way. Um, there's a kind of a blurring of the experience of 
enslaved people who were taken to North America. That, that traditionally, there's a lot of schools have used the 1970s TV program Roots to illustrate this, and it's you know it's a really engaging TV program, but it kind of um, it, it blurs in the students' minds the fact that there was a very different uh, experience in the North American colonies, which of course gained their independence in the 18th century and in the Caribbean, which remained part of the British empire for a lot longer. Wouldn't you say, Rich? Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think that also the school curriculum, We, I think something that the team has realized is that the school curriculum is quite a colonial curriculum. Really last year was where I, personally suddenly started realizing the flaws in my curriculum and I think it's really easy to fall into the trap when you're looking at something like empire or transatlantic slavery to look at it through the eyes of uh, white people and to look at it through the eyes of British people and it, and it's very easy to fall into that trap it takes skill and it takes a lot of thought to actually think about it from a different perspective from the enslaved and throughout this project we just we kept using the mantra what what story would enslaved africans want to tell how would enslaved africans want to tell this story differently and that was really kind of it suddenly started getting all of us to think about different perspectives and how we could really look at the exact same thing that we've been looking at for ages, but with a slightly different perspective on it. And it just made us all think differently. Mm. And how did you go about that? Was it telling personal stories and using the testimony of enslaved people themselves? How did you present enslaved people as active agents of change in the textbook? So I mean, there's, if you don't mind, I'll answer this, Tom. So there's really, I think we did it in two or three different ways. I think Firstly, we made sure that nearly every chapter has some element of resistance in it because there was resistance in transatlantic slavery in every element of it, from capture to the Middle Passage to the plantations, resistance was there. And we made sure that that was there in our textbook because it has not been there in traditional textbooks. So resistance was there. And we also, um, when it came to the manuscript we sent our manuscript off to um, one of our good friends who's a black history teacher in London. And she read the manuscript. And one of the things that she said was that some of the um, enslaved Africans were faceless. And it made all of us think, actually, she had a point. So the second thing that we've done throughout the book is do there's spotlight boxes. So spotlight stories on individuals, named individuals throughout. So we've really tried to give name and character to these people rather than just saying it's a homogenous group of enslaved Africans. We've named specific people throughout that story. So in pre-slavery Africa, um, we've named people who um, were living here in the streets of Bristol. And kind of, I think that idea of naming specific individuals gives those people um, a, a face as kind of the criticism we received. And it was a fair piece of criticism. And also, uh, we felt it was important not to shy away from the complexity of those people's lives either and tr try and paint a kind of two-dimensional picture of um, British people as evil and African people as, as angelic. Um, we, in dealing with what happened in West Africa and who actually was involved in transatlantic slavery, 
we make it clear that there were people in Ghana, the area we've chosen to focus on as a kind of case study, um, who benefited and who who grew rich on the back of um, selling other people. And that comes through in the individual stories as well, I think, those moral choices people made as human beings. But that's what makes history fascinating, isn't it? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The legacy of the trade is in nearly every building in this city or every street. And I think it's really trying to get, I think it's really important as history teachers that we get our students to engage with that kind of history that is around us and get them to think about what is around them. Why is it that the buildings and the places that we live in, why are they the way that they are? We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And thinking now about Bristol and Bristol's history, I actually read an article that you wrote, Richard, and you said that local history is a really good way of inspiring um, the children that you're teaching, inspiring your students. And I was thinking, obviously, there are a lot of architectural references to slavery in the city. So the most famous is Colston, but there's also Perry's Bridge, which is named after an enslaved person called Perry Jones, which is for any listeners who aren't in Bristol, as I know I'm aware, many of you won't be. Um, it's just down in the city centre at the harbour side. I was wondering, was that something you were teaching before, before this textbook, before Colston statue fell? Is that something that was part of your lessons yes but not in enough depth so it was definitely there i just don't think there was a massive amount of rigor there before and 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 the the statue falling really again one of the things that made me think was i went back into school the next week well i didn't go to school i was teaching remotely but speaking to my classes that next week there were huge numbers of my students who had no idea who colston was and i know that I'd mentioned him in my lessons, but clearly not in enough detail for the students of this city to understand who is a really key figure in this city 
it, and again, as Tom said, in a complex way of somebody that enslaved 85,000 Africans, but also did plug money into this city. And I think it was important that my students had that idea of this complexity of this individual, but they didn't. And that was also partly kind of what inspired us to write the textbook, really. Yeah, and I think the whole the debate about statues that's happened since Colston fell has actually only enriched history lessons. It's yeah. um, it's something I've brought into other parts of the British Empire that I teach about. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, you can't get rid of statues. They they teach our history, so I, th- I thought I'd go with that and and explore the stories behind some of these statues with my classes and. We'll often have a discussion about should the statue of, I don't know, Robert Baden-Powell uh, stay up. Um, I think it's a really good way into some of those uh, those discussions about how we commemorate the past in this country. But it, it also, the last year has really made me realise how much of the fabric of this city reveals the legacy of transatlantic slavery. And, and Really, you can't walk down a street in this city without realising that. I I just walked into this building and I walked down Guinea Street, which is named after the the, the Atlantic trade. And it just, I walked past Perrow's Bridge. We're on Colston Avenue. Yeah, We're on Colston Avenue. I walked through Queen Square, which is where lots of the merchants lived. The legacy of the trade is in nearly every building in this city or every street. And I think it's really trying to get, I think it's really important as history teachers that we get our students to engage with that kind of history that is around us and get them to think about what is around them. Why is it that the buildings and the places that we live in, why are they the way that they are? I mean, the other thing that the textbook really tried to do as well is get students to realise that it's not just in the cities though, that the legacy of transatlantic slavery is also in the countryside around us. I mean, I teach at Ashton Park School, which is on the edge of Bristol. From my office, I can see Ashton Court Estate. That house, that stately home is beautiful. It was built on the money of Jamaican plantations. And I think, to me, that doesn't lessen the beauty of that building, but it enriches my understanding and the history of it. And we've talked quite a lot about the physical legacy of the slave trade, but what other legacies does the slave trade have, particularly in Bristol, that you talk about in your textbook? Well, we bring the story right up to the present day with um, the sort of the fight for racial equality. Um, a colleague of ours, Ed, Ed Durbin, um, wrote what I think is one of the best sections in the book about the, as he calls it, um, the knot which ties together race and slavery and how he explains it really, really beautifully, I think, in words that a 12-year-old can understand um, and how that that knot has yet to be disentangled in the society the students are in now. I mean, those protests we've, we've already mentioned, they really affected the students. They, they see the, the injustice around them and um, it's something that fires them up. And for them to be able to explore the kind of the deep history of that that idea of, of racial injustice is something really powerful, I think. And and I think that racialization as a legacy of transatlantic slavery is something that 
I think there were a handful of British schools that were actually teaching that before the Black Lives Matter protests of a year ago. And I think suddenly everybody realised that this is something that is very neglected in our curriculum, in our classroom, as an important element that we should be addressing and talking with our students. And that comes across as a legacy in our book very strongly. Absolutely. I mean, it's, we've talked about old textbooks before, or not even that old really, but textbooks from a few years ago. And it is incredible how you can look, look through some of those and they don't mention race at all, not even once. You know, they, they'll show pictures of enslaved Africans and, um, and white Europeans standing over them. But at no point does it actually mention the word race or the, the concept. It's just kind of, it's supposed to be implicit somehow. And I think really explaining the roots of those ideas um, is one of the most important things we can do. And, and in particular, if you're aiming a textbook at a 12-year-old, making something that's as complicated as race implicit, I think is a bit is problematic. <laughs> And I think that we need to be making those issues explicit rather than implicit. I think it's important. Mm. Um, so there's lots of places that I could take the interview next. But before we delve into black history, I would like to get to know your guys' thoughts on Colston's statue just one more time. I know we've talked about him a lot, but the thing I really wanted to know is, Obviously, Colson's statue, it was toppled last year and it is currently on display in the M Shed in Bristol. What do you think should happen to the statue next? Well, actually, I've done even well before the before the statue came down, um, when I used to teach transatlantic slavery to my year eight students, we would have a debate every year. Should the statue come down? Obviously, that's a bit of a moot point now. But um but what I really enjoyed about that was the class were always split about 50-50. No matter which bunch of kids I had, I did this about six years in a row, and the class were always split about 50-50, uh, which I think is the sign of a good history lesson, really. It shows everyone's making their own mind up, at least. Um, for me personally, I'd like to see him stay in the M Shed, I think, on his side, covered in graffiti. I think that's the best place for him. I, I agree. I I'd, I'd rather he stayed in the M shed. I, I don't think it would be appropriate to put it back on that plinth now. Um, I also don't think it would be appropriate to put it away, which is what some other people have said. I think the best place is that he stays in the museum yeah. with the graffiti on him, on his side. And I think I went in to see him in there the day that exhibition opened, took my daughter as well. And the the interpretation they've got around it is brilliant. You know, they've really put the statue in its context. Um, actually, they did have to add a bit, a little bit later about the merchant venturers and their role in um, in putting the statue up. But they really explained, you know, this statue wasn't put up in the 17th century when he was alive. It was put up in 1895. It's already a historical interpretation when it was created. Um, and yeah, I think they've done a brilliant job down there and they should keep him how, how he is. So thinking now about black history more widely, how do you, I know obviously this is a very massive question, so apologies, but how do you think black history as a whole should be taught in schools? What kind of approach do you think we should take? Firstly, I think it's really important that it's integrated into the curriculum and not seen as an add-on in Black History Month, which I think it is in a lot of schools. It, it's it needs to be integrated into our curriculum. It needs to not be seen as a bolt-on. It needs to be seen as a fundamental part of what we do. So whether that's 
whatever topic you are doing, I think it's important that we do talk about diversity of voices and black history to me is one part of that that needs to be um, fundamentally there. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's that idea black history is British history. It's not something different uh, in another part of the world. Even, you know, like I was saying earlier, some schools looking at the, at the empire of Mali in the 14th century, not just seeing that as some faraway kingdom, but um, the place where gold travelled from to come to medieval medieval England and make crown jewels and um, religious artefacts in churches. The connections have always been there, and I think that's what we want to see, a, a, a wider history. And I think it's really important that we kind of challenge some of those myths that exist in this country, historical myths. So we're challenging things that, for example, that black people really didn't exist in this society until Windrush. Black people have been here for a lot longer than that. And I think we need to explain that and show that to our students. It's imp- that, that, that I think we've got a moral obligation as a history teacher to do that. As a connected question, do you think that um, teachers should be learning from their students about black history? What role do you think the students should take? Absolutely. I think the students are vocal, in my experience, about what they want to know, especially in the in the aftermath of, of last year. But before that, too, I once had a student come to me on her last day of year 11, um, a black student, and she said, look, you haven't taught me all the history I wanted to know. You never taught us about... Um, Africa before transatlantic slavery, for instance. And, you know, I, th- I found that quite quite jarring to be told that at first, but then it was important that, that she said that. And, yeah, we want, to, we want to hear what our students want to know. Well, one of our other colleagues um, who wrote on this book, Kate Smee, um, teaches in another Bristol school with a significant proportion of Somali students. And... A very similar thing happened to Kate. She was that the students said that we want to do some Somali history. But I think that Kate's example to me also emphasizes that I think as history teachers, we need to do our own homework as well. We can't just rely on our kids. So Kate went away after the kids said this to her and did an awful lot of reading about Somali history to create some resources to use in her classroom, which went down an absolute storm. And I think that we need to have that responsibility ourselves as well. And what kind of reactions have your students had to the textbook? I haven't got to use it yet because it's only just come out. I'm assuming you're the same, Tom. The only bit I've showed them is that section I was talking about before that Ed Durbin wrote on race. And um, it they really responded well to it. It was uh, I, I showed it to older students, actually, because um, I'd already done that topic with year eight but uh they really they found that um that exploration of the link between race and slavery to be really uh really revealing i think and uh, earlier in the process we what the the manuscript was run past um uh, some black students in london who really responded very favorably in particular to the idea of having named people throughout the book as well but yeah hopefully we'll get to use it more with our students this year Mm, definitely and thinking about other cities so obviously bristol is not the only city in the united kingdom but thanks to slavery there's 
London, Liverpool, Lancaster. How do you think teachers in those other cities can start to engage with their histories? Would you recommend they write their own textbooks, look into the history more? Is there anything you'd want to see across the country? To, to me, I think the key to the whole of this project for us was linking up with the museum. And I think that I would encourage any other history teachers to speak to people in the heritage sector who know an immense amount about the cities that they work in in a way that history teachers just don't have that knowledge mostly and so to me I think the first step would be definitely linking up with heritage people and linking up with local academics who can help you out with that kind of knowledge and I've already seen that happening um, in Liverpool where some other colleagues of ours who've been inspired by what we've done have already started a similar kind of They've started the seeds of what I hope will be a similar project in Liverpool because I think that yeah, it, I hope we've kind of set up a model that could be used in other places. And for my final question, when your year eight students sit down and they open the textbook for their first time and they start to read it, what's the main thing you want them to take away from it? For me, it's bringing Africa back into the picture. Um, often the stories of oh, the way that transatlantic slavery is taught Africa gets left behind very quickly and the impact on that part of the world is glossed over. But bringing Africans and Africa into the story and um, and really getting them to understand the legacy that still goes on in that part of the world um, is the most important. And for me... In addition to that, I think it's also that I want our students to realise that this is part of their story and that this is not just the story of enslaved Africans. This is the story of, this is a global story and this is a story of how Britain came to be. And and I want my students to understand that and not see transatlantic slavery as a narrow piece of history that happened in the 18th century, that actually this is a story that began way before that. And really, the ripples of that story can still be felt today. That was Richard Kennett and Tom Allen. The textbook that they've co-authored, along with six other teachers, is called Bristol and Transatlantic Slavery, Origins, Impact and Legacy. It's available now from Bristol Museums. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also be interested to hear a conversation that I had recently with author Alex Renton about his own family's involvement in the slave trade. Just search for The Slave Trade, A Family History on your podcast feed or on historyextra.com to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the fall of revolutionary Maximilian Robespierre. (laughs) 